and then I realized I went downhill. So anyway, by the time I got to bed last night, it was really late, and uh, thankfully nobody I heard around me snored. I don't know if any of you had the same luxury as me, not having any snoring in the room. But uh, good breakfast this morning, good start to yesterday's meetings, and I'm looking forward to today. We're going to go back to Ephesians. Would you go there early chapters 5 and 6? Ephesians chapters 5 and 6. We covered 5, 17 to 21 last night. And I called the message, What Are You Filled With? And by way of review, we talked about being filled with the indwelling spirit. There's the influence within, that's the Holy Spirit. And then uh, the evidence without, and you talk about what the Spirit of God does in our lives, and He causes us to sing, make melody in our heart, to give thanks in all things, and to submit to others in the fear of God. That's, that's evidence of being filled with the Spirit. And I always think about this when you consider who it is that's doing the indwelling, who's doing the empowering within. He's called the what Spirit? The Holy Spirit, yeah. Think about that. Holy, set apart, completely separate from sin. Think of it this way, uh, when, you, when you think of a person who's demon-possessed, what does that mean, they're possessed by demons? Well, they're, they're controlled by demons. So you think of, like, the demoniac, if you're completely controlled by demonic influence. Well, what's the antithesis of that, the converse to that? To be spiritual. And if a demon-possessed person is controlled by evil entities, how much more you and I should be controlled by the most godly entity? And I say, Eddie, please understand, he's a personality. The Holy Spirit is not, we're not dealing with Star Wars here. This is not the force, you know. He's not a force, he's a person. Amen. He is God. And is it ever right to pray, you know, dear Holy Spirit? I don't think it's wrong to address the Spirit of God directly. He always points to Jesus Christ, but he's one with the Father. And so I often find myself praying. In fact, I was looking to witness to the neighbor in Pensacola, and I was praying to the Topic turned toward uh, eschatology and last things, and his wife has a good background in that. So, just the other day, uh, was that Thursday? Yeah, the day before yesterday, I was just like, That's perfectly right to ask God to do the work because without Him, we can do nothing. And remember, the Spirit of God is the person of Jesus, other self. Remember, He said, When I when I ascend back to heaven, uh, He said, Lo, I am with you always. Thought you were going back to heaven. He said, I'll send you another comfort. And another is one of identical character, of identical identical identity, if you will. Uh, because he's with us, uh, even Thomas the British preacher said this way, he's, he's with us in the person of his other self. That's the Spirit of God. If you want a really good devotional book, um, one of my favorites um, is The Saving Life of Christ by Ian Thomas. Yeah. And the premise of the book is the death of Jesus for you is to put the life of Jesus in you. That's a good summary statement. The death of Jesus for you is to put the life of Jesus in you. You read that book? That's really valuable. Yeah, so, excellent one. Okay, so we're going to go on to now chapter 5, verse 22. And uh, the second section here is be spiritual in interpersonal relationships. So when the Spirit of God is in control within... It's going to evidence itself in the way we interact with people. So, let's start with wives and husbands. Look at the, let me read from 22, chapter 5, 22, down to verse 33. Ephesians 5, 22. Wives, submit yourselves unto your own husbands as unto the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church. And he's the savior of the body. 
Therefore, as the church is subject unto Christ, so let wives be to their own husbands and everything. Husbands, love your wives, even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it, that he might sanctify and cleanse it with the washing of water by the word, that he might present it to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that it should be holy and without blemish. So ought men to love their wives as their own bodies. He that loved his wife loved himself. For no man ever yet hated his own flesh, but nourished it and cherished it, even as the Lord of the church. For we're members of the body, uh, of his body, and of his flesh, and of his bones. For this cause shall a man leave his father and mother, and shall be joined to his wife, and they too shall be one flesh. This is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. Nevertheless, let every one of you in particular so love his wife, even as himself, and the wife see that she reverence her husband. Let's just take a moment and ask God to open our eyes and, and teach us. Thank you for food this morning, Father. Thank you for the beauty of being up here in the hills. Thank you for a, a very pleasant facility where we can meet. Thank you especially for music that moves our heart toward you, for the eternal word. And we know you didn't just give us print on a page. You gave us a word that is quick and powerful. It's, it's animated, activated, it's alive, it's energizing. I pray that you would please now take this truth and open our eyes to your spirit and be our teacher. We're, we're talking about your work in our lives. And I pray we would be the, the uh, beneficiaries of your mighty, daily, personal ministry to us. Please teach us to walk in your ways. I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Notice it starts with uh, the marriage relationship, wives and husbands. And it's interesting, we all like the part where he says, wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands. I'm not going to go into a whole lot about that, but let me, suffice to say the word submit there is to subject oneself in a voluntary attitude. And I mentioned the military analogy last night. Some of you served under people that were younger than you, shorter than you, all of you thought dumber than you. But, you know, you still submit to them. Um, a wife is told to submit to their husband. That doesn't mean she's a doormat. Let me give you a great analogy of this. Go to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. In our day that is so flipped on its head in understanding the biblical family, you know, this is called sexist. Of course, everything's called, you know, xenophobic, homophobic, sexist, whatever. Okay? It's like, does that mean anything anymore? You know, if you don't like it, I agree with somebody, you just call them a racist. Okay, well, is it sexist to say that a wife is to submit to her husband? Uh, no, it's what God said. But I want you to see this 1 Corinthians 11, verse 3. He said, I'd have you know that the head of every man is Christ. The head of the woman is the man, and the head of Christ is God. Okay, now we all like a wife submit yourself to your husband, but who's the head of the man? Christ, you and I are to submit to him. Isn't this interesting? The head of Christ is God. Let me ask you, is Jesus Christ in any way inferior to God the Father? No, no, of course not. And yet he submitted himself to the Father. Uh, one preacher, I like what he said, uh, I, I marvel at the modesty in the Trinity. Jesus always submitted to the Father. The Holy Spirit always glorifies Jesus. They're absolutely co-equal. And yet, the Lord Jesus submitted himself to his Father. Isn't that interesting? So submission does not mean inequality. Uh, you know, so you think about this. What would you rather have, um, satin or canvas? Would you rather have a hammer or a screwdriver? He said, well, it depends. I mean, if I'm nailing a picture frame to the wall, I want a hammer. You know, if I've got a Phillips head screw, I want a Phillips head screwdriver. Okay, satin or canvas? Well, it depends. 
Am I making a knapsack to put gear in? Or am I, you know, getting dressed for a wedding? Is a girl getting dressed for a wedding? It kind of depends. Men and women, this whole idea that men and women are equal, well, in what sense? Equal in value, but not equal in roles, not equal in function. God made us with distinction. And to deny the distinctiveness of men and women is absolutely absurd. This whole idea of, of transgenderism in, in competition, this... If I were a woman, I would resent you. I, I don't blame Riley against the Kentucky swimmer being upset that this, this male who couldn't win on the male circuit then identifies as a woman and comes in and winning all these uh, swim events. We're not created equal. Okay, we are equal in nothing, but we have different roles. Men have a bigger lung capacity, bigger skeletal structure, bigger muscular build, etc. And no, men do not bear children. Uh, this whole idea of, you know, uh, birthing parents. Uh, they're called females, okay? And uh, God made us for different roles. I, uh, I might claim to identify as a woman, but I want to tell you something. If I said that, I'm never going to nurse a baby. I don't have the capacity. We are made unique. We're made different. And we need to understand the role that God has given us. And it's tied up in biological sex. Sex is a gift of God. And so you're unique in your roles, but that does not mean a woman is inferior to a man. And it's very interesting, too, notice that she submits to her own husband, not everybody else's husband. Uh, I've been to some places where men act like women are here to serve us. I know my wife's not here to serve you. And frankly, she's not here to serve me. I mean, that's a voluntary love service, but it's not like I order her around. So I would spend a lot more time with that if we had women, but we're not dealing with the women right now. So there's the wives and husbands, so the wives... We have the roles there of uh, submit to her husband and then also reverence her husband. Very interesting in uh, the term of reverence is to, sh to show uh, honor to, to revere. One of my favorite marriage books is uh, Emerson Egerich's book, Love and Respect. And the whole idea of the wife's primary need is love and the husband's primary need is reverence. What's reverence? Respect. And I have an unsaved cousin who is 50 years old and is about to get married for the first time. And uh, he had asked me to do the wedding. I'm, I'm not able to do the wedding. And I thought, ooh, I, I thought about it because it would be unequal. They're both lost. And I thought about doing, you know, premarital counseling with them and all that. I, I can't do the wedding. But I sent him a copy of that book <clears throat> and then a copy of the Carrie Schmidt book, Done on the Gospel. And uh, said, I want to talk to you about two most important relations. Your relationship with God and your relationship with each other. And the reason I sent him that book on love and respect, even though they're not saved at this point, I'm praying every day, I've had them for decades. The, the reason I sent him that is it will understand your job as a husband we're about to get into is love your wife, and the wife's job is to reverence, to respect, to revere her husband. You and I both know we need that. We need that affirmation. That's another message for another time. But let's move into the guys. Okay, so husbands, what is our job? All right, first one we're told is to love your wife. Now, let's get into the particulars. How do you do that? I heard a story years ago. Um, a pastor was talking to his one of his church members about loving his wife. And he said, preacher, I don't know what else I can do. He said, I'm building a deer stand. He said, I got a heater in there. He said, I got her a new 30-06. He said, I mean, we're set up, brother. And the preacher said, Bob, she spelled love Sheraton, Hilton, Marriott. You know, she's not interested in your deer stand. You've got to love her in a way she understands. 
And think about this. If I wrote a love letter to my wife in Spanish, you know what that would mean to her? Nothing. She doesn't speak Spanish. If I wrote a letter to her in Japanese, that wouldn't mean anything because she speaks English. Okay, if I'm going to write her a love letter, I've got to put it in a language she understands. And we all have different ways of expressing love. And maybe you've heard, you know, read the book on the five love languages and acts of service and notes of affirmation. And, you know, some people are into, I like physical touch, you know. And I, uh, my wife is different. I mean, she shows her love by serving. I like, hey, come give me a kiss. I'm drunk, hug me up. You know, we have, there are different ways of love. If I want to show my wife uh, my love for her, day before yesterday, I was running around filling propane tanks for the trailer and doing my honeydew list and... That is the security she needs. I've got to love her in a language that she understands. So notice this, uh, verse 23, the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, he's the savior of the body. Now, she doesn't need another savior. But what does it mean, savior of the body? I'm to make sure her needs are met. I'm going to make sure she's protected. I'm going to make sure she's cared for. Does, does your wife sense security under your leadership? You know, um, I probably, like you, have had multiple conversations about nagging. You know, I don't need another mother. Okay, you ever said that to your wife? I'm like, I'm a I don't need another mother. I already have a mother. Um, you're nagging. No, I'm not nagging. And it's interesting how each of us define nagging differently, right? Well, sometimes I figure out the reason my wife seems to be nagging me is because she has had several needs that have been brought to my attention that haven't yet been addressed. My wife's a great list keeper, and she takes delight in marking off the list. I have my list, too, but I realize that when the rapture comes, they'll never all be checked off. So why worry, okay? So um, <laughs> but, but she, she likes it when there's a sense of getting all that checked off. So I, I've got to understand, okay, I've got to protect, nurture, provide a, an environment where she feels secure. I'm supposed to be like my Savior, and that he was the Savior of the body. Notice verse 24. Therefore, as the church is subject to Christ... So that wives need their own husbands and everything. I mentioned last night, 1 John 4.19, we love him because he first loved us. That was the very first scripture I ever taught my girls when they were young. I wanted to memorize scripture with them. That was the first one. You know why? We don't love God because we're an exceptional family. We love God because he loved us. And you say, well, why don't my wife don't love me? Do you like Jesus did? He loved before anybody loved him in return. In fact, when he was on the cross and said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Who was asking forgiveness at that moment? Nobody was. But he extended it before anybody would ask. So we're going to love unconditionally. Look at verse 25. Husbands, love your wives even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it. He took the initiative. It wasn't like, well, you guys would shape up and then maybe I'd love you. No, that wasn't the way of Christ. Notice, why did he do this? Verse 26, that he might sanctify and cleanse it, the washing of water by the word. You know, Romans 2, 4 says the goodness of God leads to what? Repentance. Yeah, you say, well, I wish my wife would dress up better. I wish she'd lose some weight. I wish she, okay, what did Jesus do? He took all the initiative to wash, to cleanse the church, and then go on and read verse 27. That he might present it to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that it should be holy without blemish. If I'm talking to the women about um, respect, I, I go into the idea of some women, all women, know that men should unconditionally love their wives. It's one of uh, Egrick's comments in Love and Respect. But when you come to a wife and say, hey, listen, you need to have unconditional reverence for your husband, like, well, he hasn't earned it yet. 
Well, interesting. Who are in love? You know, the Lord loved unconditionally. And boy, I could get off on that, you know, and you'd all be like, Amen. And you say, well, what do you praise a husband for if he's a louse? If he's, you know, well, how about thank you, honey, for putting gas in the car for me? Thank you for changing the oil. Like, thank you for mowing the lawn. Well, he should be doing that. And if I said that to your wife, you'd be like, yeah, she needs to hear that. Okay, well, let me, let me come from the other side now. Loving your wife. How often do you express gratitude for meals? How often do you express gratitude for a clean house? Well, I don't have that. Why do you look for things that you can be thankful for and express deliberate compliments, deliberate gratitude, focus on the positives? One great bit of advice I heard years ago, a guy said, look at your wife through the perspective of an outsider. And I often look at my wife and think, man, she's 50 years old, she's beautiful. No, she's vivacious. Her personality, I, I try not to lose the wonder of um, appreciation. And I can tell you this, I've been 29 years of marriage, and man, will be 30, and I, I truly love my wife more than I ever have. Part of that is learning to look at her with admiration and appreciation, and not like, oh, same old woman, 30 years. Thank God for the stability of marriage. In fact, I told her last week, one thing I never thought about in uh, how marriage is a picture of Christ in the church. Why is longevity in marriage such a great thing? We have a lifetime of memories together. We not only share children together, obviously, which is a huge part of marriage. We have memories. I mean, who else can I go back time after time after time and we bring up memories? Remember being there? Remember being with someone? Remember this picture? Remember that? Nobody like my wife. We, we have, it's not just the uniqueness of intimacy in marriage. It's not just the uniqueness of, you know, you understand each other's quirkiness. Longevity, and that is such a picture of Christ in the church. That that is that is why marriage is, is meant to be for a lifetime, because it's an unconditional love. I will never leave you nor forsake you. Does your wife have that security with you? For you young guys, you just think about marriage someday. I want you to think about this: the way to get the right person is to be the right person. I remember hearing that years ago. Boy, that is so true. The way to get the right person is to be the right person. When I was at Pensacola, um, Jim Scheller preached a message called Seven Steps to Perfect Dating. And anybody who ever heard him preach it still talks about it. Uh, there were a number of principles in there. He talked about um, every date is a potential mate. Uh, postpone, marriage, postpone dating until marriage is a near possibility. Uh, wait until parents are perfectly pleased. These were just some of the steps I remember. But one of the things he pointed out, you want to, you, you obsess if you're a single guy thinking, I wonder if I might get married someday. I'd really like to find the right person. You know, how do you do it? You go on like Christian Mingle or I don't know how do you do it. Hey, the way to get the right person is to be the right person. And when you focus on being the person that God wants you to be, he promises, my God shall supply all your need according to his riches and glory. That's why we have conferences like this. To focus on being the man that God wants us to be. Uh, verse 28. So ought men to love their wives as their own bodies. That's an interesting one. Okay, you know, I'm pretty in tune with my body's, um, what it's saying to me. Like last night after basketball, I thought, okay, that's enough. Uh, so after a couple games, I thought, it's time to go now. Okay, uh, when your body's tired, what do you do? I sit in my easy chair and pull up my legs and take a nap. Okay, my body's tired, I give it a nap. Uh, when I'm hungry, yesterday I was driving up here 400 miles. I like to break up my trip with snacking along the way. So, you know, I stopped at McDonald's for breakfast, and then I uh, got some lunch, and then I stopped at QT. And I mean, I broke up my... If I'm hungry, guess what I do? I feed me. Okay? If I'm cranky, uh, I try to get myself in a better mood. 
you love your body. He says, love your wife as your own body. How, how attuned you are. How attuned are you to her needs? Notice that it goes on to say, so ought men to love their own bodies. And then this is really insightful. Verse, uh, end of verse 20, he that loveth his wife loveth himself. That's interesting. You love your wife, you love yourself. Yeah, because you're one. You're united as a, as a one plus one equals one. Okay, marital math. You're united as one. And look at verse 29. For no man yet ever hated his own flesh, but nourisheth it and cherisheth it, even as the Lord of the church. I really believe that one scripture alone is the basis for what I'm about to say. I don't believe that thoughts of suicide originate with the individual. Uh, we have rampant suicide in our country today. There are so many teens who have ended it. There are, there are young men, there are military folks coming home with PTSD, taking their lives. Suicide is rampant. I don't believe that thoughts of suicide originate with the individual. How can you say that? Well, he says, no man yet ever hated his own flesh. The greatest desire you have, believe it or not, about sex and food and everything, the greatest desire is survival. I remember as a kid reading Reader's Digest, you know, drama in real life, people would go to whatever degree. So where does thought of suicide come from? I believe it comes from the enemy of the soul. John 10.10 says, the thief comes not but for steal and kill and destroy. Now, if I could anticipate what some of you would be thinking, I know in even a group this size, somebody here has thought about suicide. Ah, oh, how do you know? Look, I got pastor friends that have confided in me. I have honestly thought about just ending it all. I'm going to read one of the greatest missionary biographies I ever read, uh, Adoniram Judson's life, called Bless God and Take Courage. You want a great missionary biography. Bless God and Take Courage. And Adoniram Judson was um, in Burma. And the, he became a political prisoner. It wasn't even religious in nature. It was, he was a political prisoner, and he was in chains, and he was being marched from one place to another, and the, the conditions were so loathsome, so horrible, that on a march one day, being taken to another camp, he honestly thought about throwing himself off a bridge in his shackles and drowning. And here he's God's missionary. And it was just such, such a low point he thought about ending it all. I've talked to pastors who've confided in me, you know, they have done it, thank God. They, they said, I have really literally thought about doing that. By the way, I've, I've known some pastors that have taken their lives. I wish I didn't have to say that. I know one in California, a pastor that had, that I've been, I preached for since the early 90s, and he had taken out a credit card in the church's name, was embezzling funds because they never paid him very well, and he thought, well, they owe it to me. And when it got found out, he ended up um, carbon monoxide poisoning, car in the garage until he just passed away because he didn't want to face the reality of it. Now, let me tell you, that pastor friend of mine, I, I guarantee you this, that thought is not really coming from himself. You might say, well, but I thought about, I should just pull the trigger. I should just take the pills. I should. I know, you're thinking it was first person. It's not coming from him. It's coming from the enemy. That's why God tells us to bring into captivity every thought to the obedience of Christ. And he that loveth his wife loveth himself, and vice versa. Let me tell you, why would Satan go after you? You're the head of the family. If he can take you out, it affects your kids, it affects your wife. So that's why the father is under such attack. Manhood is under such attack in this country 
And masculinity is, is considered toxic today. Let me tell you, it is not toxic for you to be a man. Amen. God wants you to be a man, own the manhood. But Satan is going after it, and he will do everything he can to get your psyche, because if he can destroy you, he'll blow up the family. That's the intention. Keep going, verse uh, 30. For we're members of his body, of his flesh, of his bones. For this cause shall a man leave his father and mother, shall be joined to his wife. They too shall be one flesh. This is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. Nevertheless, let every one of you in particular so love his wife, even as himself, and the wife that she reverence her husband. So notice, you love your wife, and then you live out the picture. What's the picture? The picture is that of Christ and the church. Aren't you glad that the Lord never uh, leaves you because you had a bad day? Aren't you glad that the Lord never came home and said, you know, you're not very appealing to me anymore. You don't look half as good as when this relationship started. I'm out of here. Man, how long would we be saved if those were the conditions? Aren't you, aren't you grateful for eternal security? I sure am. And listen, in your family, the most loving thing you can do for your children is to love their mother. The most important thing a man can do for his family is to love his wife. All of the family relationship starts with husband and wife. And by the way, having said that, all of the marital relationship starts with you and the Lord. Remember, uh, is, uh, Ecclesiastes says that threefold cord is not quickly broken. There's the Lord Jesus and you and your spouse, and that's the threefold strand that is not quickly broken. Okay, so again, I know a lot of this is really basic stuff. As I was praying, we're like covered in men's feet. There's nothing new under the sun. I wanted to go back to this because it is just so, not only so practical, it is just so relevant to where things are in our communities right now. Let me, uh, let me move on. So there's the wife and the husband relationship. And then we have, the next one is going to be the uh, children and parents. You should be on the slide there. Yeah, okay. Kids. Honor and obey. We'll get into that. So, look at chapter 6. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor thy father and mother, which is the first commandment with promise, that it may be well with thee, that thou mayest live long on the earth. Your fathers, provoke not your children to wrath, but bring them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. Okay, on the kid's side, and some of you are teenagers, he says, you've got two roles here. You're to obey, and you're to honor. Now, there is a distinction between obedience and honor. O obey means to submit to authority, means to carry out orders. To honor is to show respect, to fix value upon. Let me ask you, do your parents feel like they that you are that they are valued in your sight? I always like the analogy that if let's say you're watching a football game, and let's say national championship game, or no, let's let's say an SEC championship, that would be better. And let's say it happens, let's say we're Alabama and Georgia, okay? And your mom's, I don't know, 10 hours, but let's pretend. So they're saying, okay, mom says, hey, listen, we've got company coming, and I need the trash taken out. Mom, two minutes left in this game. She's, look, I know company is coming. Two minutes, mom. You and I both know two minutes in football can take 20 minutes. Now get the trash right now. <laughs> you grab the trash, you go out and kick the can and throw the trash and Slam the door. Okay, question. Did you obey your mother? Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, you took the trash out. Now, second question. Did you honor your mother? No. Okay, <clears throat> obedience has to do with actions. Honor has to do with 
attitude. And he says, obey and honor. And isn't it interesting, in the Ten Commandments, sometimes we have this idea, well, you're 18, you don't have to honor your parents anymore. Remember this, the Ten Commandments were not given to children, they were given to adults. God didn't say to adult, uh, to children, rather, thou shalt not commit adultery. They don't even know what that is. The Ten Commandments were given to adults, obviously to teach their children. And this is the first commandment coupled with a promise that it may be well with thee, with you as an individual, that thou mayest live long on the earth. Okay? So you personally are going to benefit by honoring and obeying your parents. God set up the family structure. It is incredible to me that so many of society, societal problems because of the breakdown of the family. The great preponderance of the prison population are young men that grew up without a father in the home. Yeah. It's, some, it's like over 60% of those in prison grew up without a dad in the home. It's a rampant problem. And that's, that doesn't matter what race you're from. If there's no dad in the home, that is a, that's a, that is a systemic problem. In fact, it is the biggest contributor to crime and to dysfunction is... God meant for there to be a dad home. Now, can God give grace in a single parent home? Some of you can testify to that. Yeah, God. How about um, Timothy, even though he had a dad in the home, his father was a Greek, apparently was not saved. Remember Paul said, when I call to remembrance the unfeigned faith that is in me, which dwelt first in thy mother Eunice and thy, and thy grandmother Lois. Uh, he doesn't mention the dad. It was a mom and a grandmom who had a powerful influence over Timothy, and that's what brought him to saving faith. Timothy becomes the one Paul says, I, I got no man like-minded who will naturally care for your state. In other words, I, I'm trusting him as my successor. Okay, God gave compensatory grace in a situation that was not ideal. God can give grace, but let me tell you something. You and I want to follow the model, and the model is the end father, a mother, who love each other, who are committed to God's principles, and live out the picture, and now kids that honor and obey their parents. So honor and obey. Then, now, this is interesting. To dads, what does he say? Well, two things. He says, provoke not and bring up. Okay, provoke not. Now, that is not to not exasperate. How do fathers provoke their kids? Now, I wrote out a list of some ideas. How, how, how can a, a dad provoke or exasperate his kids? Well, main reason is anger. I read years ago, an angry heart in the father will provoke anger in the children. Anger. Um, harshness. Harshness. Boy, my dad was a work of grace. I remember he didn't get saved till I, after I was born. We didn't get into Bible preaching church until I was a teenager. And I'll tell you a little bit more about that in the last message. But I do remember this thing that my dad had been a general contractor, and before we had started going to a good church, he had a fiery temper. My dad never drank. My dad would never have had a like a pornography issue or any of that. Um, my dad was not the kind who ever would have left my mother. But he had a temper, and sometimes he gets so mad, so angry. When we were kids, and we were working on a building project, and he'd been putting up sheetrock in a house, and one of my sisters or me, we're just young at the time, and we didn't do something right, He'd take the hammer and slam it through the sheetrock. Because he's going to come and mud it over later. He, you know, he'd fix it. Man, that sent shockwaves for us kids, right? Later on, he apologized to us for that. He realized that is not the way a person should be. I remember him cussing when I was a kid. Now, for me to think back on my dad cussing, it's like, wow, that was a lifetime ago. Because my dad 
later after his years of being a general contractor, he went off to college when I did to get a Bible degree because he thought he might end up a pastor. My dad never ended up a pastor. Uh, he worked at Home Depot for the next 25 years. I called him the missionary at Home Depot. I'll tell you some of those stories in the next session. But uh, my dad had a great testimony for the Lord, and all three of us kids ended up in full-time ministry. But my dad changed. He grew. He went from this fiery temper. I remember as a kid, when my dad had, there were times he would provoke. I'm in junior high. At that time, I'm in public school. My dad would get up really early, and I remember my dad making a pancake breakfast for me. I remember him scrambling eggs sometimes. My mom was a great cook. She not only did the cooking. I wonder, what's my dad doing? He, he wanted to have breakfast with me. And I look back on it and I realize now my dad was doing what he could do to build bridges with me. We went camping. We do family outings. My dad was Mr. Scott Day. Something We lived in New Jersey and we were about 45 minutes from the ocean. And I remember sometimes on a really nice moonlit night, it'd be 8, 9 o'clock at night, and my dad said, let's go down to the shore. New Jersey has a boardwalk, oh, has a number of boardwalks, but Ocean City, New Jersey has a, a boardwalk that I grew up going to as a kid, and it had arcade places and amusement parks and pizza parlors and all this. So like, let's go down to the shore. And we just spontaneously go down, and, and my dad made life fun. My dad, my dad was doing everything he could to build relationships. You know, harshness is one of the ways you can provoke your kids. How about unreasonable expectations? unreasonable expectations. You know, don't try to live out your dream through your kids. Oh, man, I was a semi-pro ball player. I almost beat the big leagues. But so help me, my son's going to make the big leagues. My boy's going to be in the NBA. He's going to be in the NFL. Uh, listen, have realistic expectations. This is why when the scripture talks about training up a child in the way he should go, each of them is different. My, uh, my daughter, Brianna, I always prayed my kids would be in full-time ministry and whatever capacity the Lord would choose in that. And I remember when my little, when my daughter Brianna was about nine years old, she used to do all this elaborate artwork, and I'd think, oh, wow, it's amazing. I'm a dad, you know, so of course I think it's great. One of my friends, Jim Hutchinson, had been an artist for the back of books, and had moved out to Dallas and was home visiting his dad, who was a pastor. And I said, hey, Jim, would you look at my daughter's artwork and tell me if you think it's any good? So he spent an afternoon during choir practice when dad and mom were at choir practice. He taught my daughter, and he a little tutorial, and he pulled me aside later and he said, hey, I want to tell you something. If I lived within an hour and a half of where you live, he said, I would drive to you every week to give her lessons. He said, you need to develop this. This is really a good skill. And I thought, okay, note to self. My daughter's got a gift. It's not just the bad thing she's good, you know. So as she got into high school, we were out with um, my friend Jeff Redman, who's now at Campus Church, when he was at Front Range Baptist in Fort Collins. And a couple of his guys that I knew worked at Otterbox, and they were they were graphic designers. And so uh, we went over and took a tour of Otterbox, where they designed these phone cases and such. And my daughter loved it. It's this really cool work environment. They've got a slide that goes from the third floor down to the bottom floor, so when you're ready to go down, jump on the slide and go to the bottom. It's like uber creative there. So we're talking to these, these artist friends of ours, and I said, do you have any advice for my daughter? Well, Brianna, what do you want to do? Oh, she likes studio art, you know, portrait art. And one of these guys was an artist, and he's, he's a great portrait artist. But he said, let me give you some advice, Brianna. In fact, both of them agreed. You should go into something like graphic design, because you may not like the computer-generated stuff, but that's where you can make a living. And you'll also be able to use it to benefit not only businesses, but churches, etc. 
You'll always have your artistic abilities to fall back on, but you really want to consider doing this. So she's a teenager at the time, like, okay. Well, today she's a graphic designer. She just got asked um, uh, last year to do the artwork for um, Andy Andrews, who's a New York Best Time seller. He did a children's book, and she did all the artwork for it. And uh, this week she's uh, doing a mural for the Ronald McDonald House in, in Pensacola. She got a Got asked to do a mural over there. All kinds of little things like this. Church friends of mine are, are using her skills. And you know the blessing of it? She, she can work from home. And I'm pointing all this out because I might have had these expectations. This is what I want my daughter. The neat thing is she married a youth pastor, too. And uh, he coaches in a Christian school. So I've got the double blessing of she's in ministry, but also doing what God gave her an attitude to do. You don't have unrealistic expectations. Ask God what your expectations should be. And if I try to get each of my girls to be the same as the other, that wouldn't be fair to the others. So asking God, Lord, give me wisdom how to carry this out. Uh, hypocrisy, that is a definite way to provoke your children to wrath. Duplicity, you know, you live one way, now, all right, we're all going to church. Everybody straighten up. We're going to be in church, and I want you on your best behavior. Well, I'm going on our best behavior at home, you know. Uh, sure, we, we don't all wear church attire all the time. Sure, you know, it's, it's a little different when you're in church as far as um, interaction with people. But I, I, one of the most important compliments I've ever heard is people say, hey, you know, you're, you're kind of the same in the pulpit as you are playing basketball or, you know, going out to eat or whatever. Uh, my dad taught me, be authentic, just be real. Yeah, and, and your kids need to see that. Now, that doesn't mean, well... First thing comes to my mind, I say it. You know, have a governor, okay? Learn to ride your speech. But hypocrisy will provoke uh, a wrong response in the kids. And then inconsistency, okay? So it's like changing the rules all the time. Inconsistency. Failure to praise the good. Failure to praise the good. This was tremendous advice. I don't remember where I heard it, but somebody told me years ago, try to practice ten parts of praise for every one part of criticism. Ten parts of praise for every one part. This not only works in a family, this works in business, this works in ministry. It is so easy to see things that need to be corrected. But how seldom do people get praised for what's good? Wow, you cleaned up your room, that looks great. You should do that every time. You know, instead of always wanting to jump to the corrective, how about focusing on the positive things? And I'll tell you this, if you're in a habit of praising the good, it becomes easier when you have to correct the bad. But I will tell you, it takes effort. You've got to look for things to praise. Uh, failure to praise the good. Public correction. Public correction. Uh, we, we have a family member, extended family member, that they, they correct their kids in front of everybody else. And it is not only uncomfortable for everybody else. I know it causes the kids to bristle. You know, public correction. Listen, your kids don't need to be corrected. I said do it. You know, whoa, 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 okay. Hold them aside. Don't embarrass them in front of other people. Aren't you glad that God doesn't correct you publicly? Now, the scope of the transgression is the scope of the confession. So, you know, if, if you committed adultery and everybody knows that, obviously that's going to be made, made a public matter. But if you've had private thoughts of lust and God and you know about it, you don't need to tell everybody. That needs to be between you and God. There are things that do not need to be aired between everybody else. Um, if you have kids that have given you trouble at home, the whole church does not need to know about that. 
I said to me, you and have some public correction. That's a sure way to promote exasperation of kids. And then, uh, I kind of alluded to this earlier, but imposing childhood dreams on one's child. You know, imposing your dreams on your child. Uh, that ties into having unreasonable expectations. <clears throat> but don't try to make your kids live out the dream that you never fulfilled. Okay, so, at this point I was going to hand out an article. I, we may have copies of it back at church, because uh, I, I want to make available this week an article called Influence Trump's Authority. And it was written by Carrie Schmidt. Now, Carrie Schmidt's gone in a different direction than me personally on separation and such, but he has written some really good stuff on parenting. And I'll tell you, this Influence Trump's Authority is profound. He said, look, you don't have to have authority to have influence. Hollywood has influence over your kids. They don't have any authority, but they have influence. Social media has influence over your kids. They don't have any authority, but they have influence. And sometimes you and I think, well, I'll tell you, you do it because I said so. You know, I have authority. But let me tell you something. Influence trumps authority. You've got to build relationships. You've got to build interpersonal magnanimity, um, uh, uh, personal affection. That's what my dad was doing when he was making breakfast, when my dad was taking us on camping trips. It's not just do it because I'm your dad and I said so. It's not just I brought you in this world, I'll take you out. It's building a relationship. Influence Trump's authority. Hey, Dad, what are you doing to build a relationship with your son? You know, if you, if you adopt kids, you don't just say, well, look, we provide for you. You've got to win their heart. Isn't it amazing that the whole process of salvation isn't just like, oh, here the gospel gets saved. Usually there's a drawing that goes on. No man can come to me except the Father who sent me drawing. There's an enlightening that goes on. There's conviction before there's ever conversion. God draws us to himself. It's the same in all relationships. You've got to build to the point of trust. Build to the point of mutual interaction. So, don't promote your kids. Uh, we'll try to make that article available. I think they had it at the Secretary's office. Um, finally, let me get to servants and masters. One other area, even though we're focusing on family, let's talk about employment to end up, just after all God does. Um, pick up in verse, where was I? Five, chapter six, verse five. And we'll wrap it up here. Servants, be obedient to them that are your masters, according to the flesh, with fear and trembling and singleness of your hearts as unto Christ, not with eye service as men pleasers, but as servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, with good will, doing service as to the Lord, not to men, knowing that whatsoever good, a good thing any man doeth, the same shall he receive with the Lord, whether he be bond or free. And your masters, do the same things to, you, to them, forbearing the threat, and holding them back from threatening, knowing that your master also is in heaven, neither is the respect of persons with him. Okay, let's talk about employees, first of all. And, and what does he say? How many of you work for somebody else? You're not self-employed. Anybody here work for somebody else? Sure. Okay, a lot of people work. Okay, first of all, he says, be obedient to superiors. Notice, servants. Now, servant here is not necessarily a slave, but the, uh, the bond servant. He was, you remember in the old feudal system, the, where did the term landlord come from? The person who owned the land would be the Lord, and the people that worked for him would be the serfs. And the serfs were dependent upon him because he owned the property, so they would work for him, and that's how they would get their housing and their provision. And so that's where the term landlord came from. Okay? Well, the idea is you're, you're not a, like a slave, but you, you are indentured to somebody else. 
Okay, so we can use the term employee. You're working for somebody. You're not the owner. All right? Um, so what does he say? Be obedient to superiors. So carry out orders. Then what else do we see? Do service with goodwill. Hate this job. Well, have you ever thought about thank God that you can make money? But thank God that I have help to do this job. Thank God that I'm developing the skills or I already have the skills that can carry this out. You know, with, with goodwill means with the right attitude. It's amazing how much the Bible talks about attitude. Uh, whatsoever you do, do it heartily as to the Lord and not unto men. That's uh, Ecclesiastes 9.10. You know, in Colossians 3.23, uh, oh no, that's whatsoever you do heartily. Uh, Ecclesiastes 9.10, whatsoever thy hand by you do it with thy might. Yeah, that's the whole idea of diligence. Ecclesiastes 9.10, Colossians 3.23. You know, you're to do it with heart of enthusiasm, with heart of uh, gratitude. Okay, do service with goodwill, and then what else? Look to the Lord for your reward. Well, they're not paying me enough. Well, you know, God can take care of your compensation. And have you thought about this? A man's gift maketh room for him and bringeth him before great men. When I started out into evangelism, I thought, how does a guy get into evangelism? Now, if your name is Savinsky and your dad's Jerry, well, that helps, right? And if you're uh, Mike Pelletier and your father-in-law is Ron Comfort, that helps. You know, and you're, you're a Van Gelder and your dad's known widely. Well, that, that kind of helps. If you're Rich Tozer and it's not A.W. Tozer, <laughs> how do you get an evangelism? And I, I didn't know. I just said, well, a man's gift maketh room for him and bringeth him before great men. And so the Lord used family connections for your pastor and, and others. And that's tremendous. What a heritage. But if you say, well, I don't have the family connection. Don't. You have the family connection. You have the father. So what do you do? So I made up my mind. I am not going to promote myself. I am not going to call pastors up and say, hi, would you have me? Through no maneuvering of mine, I got asked to be a college representative. So I'm traveling from PCC. I'm preaching in churches all over the country. And when I would preach, guys would say to me, what are you going to do when you graduate? I said, well, I'm going to be an evangelist. Ah, I thought that might be the case. You can tell why you're preaching. Hey, I'd like to have you someday. I'd say, great, well, here's the card. And I said, would you mind if I call you when I get out? It may be four years from now, I don't know yet. And they said, yeah, no, give me a call. If they took the initiative, I would write that on my itineraries, and that's how I got started. But my very first meeting ever was with Paul Smith when he pastored out in Colorado. My very first meeting ever, ever in evangelism, June of 1994, and we were in Paul and Tammy. And now I knew him from college. But the next couple of meetings after that were connections that I had through God opening the door. To this day, I, I don't call up guys, unless they've asked me, I don't call up and say, hey, I've got an opening. I'd be in your area. Would you be interested? I just don't do that. I, I, I don't begrudge a guy who does differently. I just figured if God's going to open the doors, he's going to open the doors. And we've had a full schedule for years, 30 years. And again, God's big enough to open the doors for us. We don't get support like missionaries do. I don't have monthly support from churches. I get one or two individuals that will send us some money, but basically our money comes from love offerings. I don't, I'm not, please, this is not self-serving, like, hey, man, please take care of the babies. I am not worried about the offerings. Uh, my, my, my idea is my eyes are not on any one church to meet my needs. My eyes are on God to meet our needs. Okay? So please understand that. But I don't worry about the finances. I don't worry about the open doors. God takes care of that. You said, that's good, a preacher should live that way. Well, if I should live that way, don't you think you can live that way? Man, I'll tell you, my quarterly review, they didn't even consider giving me a, a raise. How about you talk to God about that? 
Remember, the king's heart is in the hand of the Lord as the rivers of water. He turned it with a sword will. You know what? Be the guy with such a good attitude. Be the person with such a productive record that they can't help but promote you. They don't want to lose you. The place of employment where you are right now, would they be glad if you walked out the door or would they be sad if you walked out the door? Make it so they'd be sad. Show your value by honoring God. So, servants and masters. But then this interesting... Uh, oh, that's good. We'll put bosses up there. I want to say one more thing about that, servants and masters. Notice this. He, he gives us this little caveat about how we serve. Verse 6, not with eye service as men pleasers. What is eye service? You see this all the time. You ever walk in a store, and maybe it's a fast food or whatever, and everybody's on their phone, and all of a sudden somebody walks in, and the phone gets put away, or sometimes that doesn't happen to the customer, but if the supervisor walks in, all of a sudden, fruit's put away, and people are schmopping things, and what, why, what are they doing? Eye service. They're only serving if somebody's eyes are on. That's what that means. In fact, it's very interesting. Many of you know the term ophthalmology. That is uh, medicine that has to do with the health of the eye. Ophthalmology. The term here for eye service, ophthalmodulea. Uh, ophthalmology has to do with eyes. Ophthalmus, eye. Dulea is the term for service, like doulos is a servant. So literally, compound word, eye service, you're only serving if somebody's watching you. I see that way too often. You know, like nobody's getting anything done. Oh man, March Madness, this is the time, right? Everybody has their big spreadsheets so that uh, when the boss walks in, they wiggle the mouse and all of a sudden the spreadsheet's up there. But as soon as he's gone, ESPN's back on, bracketology, we're watching, you know, who's right where. And Okay, eye service. Listen, remember this, the eyes of the Lord are every place, beholding the evil of the good. Proverbs 15, 3. Psalm 139, Lord, thou beholdest my down sitting, my uprising, thou understandest my thought, afar off thou comest my path and my lying down, art acquainted with all my ways. For there is not a word in my mouth, but lo, O Lord, thou knowest it all together. Realize this, the eyes of the Lord see everything. The right eye service is this, God's watching me at all times. And am I certainly not alone for him? So, don't look to the Lord, but remember this, the service is under the eyes of God. Don't just do it in eye service. And then finally, the last thing is to the bosses here. Notice in uh, verse 9, um, he says, you, you, sir, you uh, masters, very interesting how he addresses them, do the same things unto them, forbearing, threatening, knowing your master also is in heaven, neither is the respect of persons with him. What does it mean, do the same things that serve employees as you would serve the Lord himself? Servant leadership. Servant leadership. I, I remember hearing Dr. Ron Comfort say in, in God's economy, there are no big shots, there are only servants. I remember being at the Wilds camp and Ken Collier talking about servant leadership. And he said, You know what? Servant leadership is not get on the walkie talk and say, Hey, uh, we need somebody over here to take out the trash. You know, one missionary I heard said, Job seen is a sign given. Job seen is a sign given. You see the trash is overflowing? Or are your arms broken? Could you take it and tie it up? And say, hey, we're going to want to take this, you know? Take some initiative. So I was walking around camp and uh, at the Wilds, and I'm seeing Ken Collier, who at the time is the president of the camp or the director, and Ken Collier's picking up soda cans and Snickers bar wrappers. And why? That's what Ken Collier does. He's a servant. Well, yeah, that's what Jesus did. And you and I need to develop servant leadership. I was talking to um, a youth pastor at a very large church recently, 
And he said, yeah, I'm on my way to the car. And he said, um, there were some scraps and stuff. And he said, I'm just kind of picking up things along the way. And he said, every time I go to my car, I just try to pick up whatever I see and I'm throwing out. And he said, a lady called me and said, hey, can I talk to you for a minute? She said, I want you to know, you're one of the reasons we're going to send our kids to this Christian school. And he said, what, what do you mean? She said, it's that kind of thing right there. And she said, I've seen it from all the staff around here. You people see trash and what? You don't just let it go. You pick it up. She said, it's that kind of attentiveness to servanthood that makes me want to put my kids in this school. Wow, now that's living out the picture here. Yeah. So not only serve employees as you would serve the Lord himself, but then remember the Lord rewards according to actions and motives. Yeah, you know, boss can only see your actions, but God knows your motives. And really, what, what is it that's motivating you? Is it just your paycheck? Or is it the glory of God? I read the other day in my, my note to my dad, Dad, you taught me a work ethic. My dad was a general contractor. You know what, his, later he worked at Home Depot. He hated retail, but he loved construction, and he put his heart into it. And everybody that knew my dad said, man, your dad loved people. And it obviously loved God. The motive was to glorify God through work. The motive isn't just to bring home the paycheck. Does my life do all to the glory of God? Let your light so shine before men they may see your good works. And do what? Brag about you? Glorify your Father, which is in heaven. That's what spirit-filled interpersonal relationships look like. It shows up in your marriage. shows up in your parenting. shows up in your work. Interesting, too, in the, going back to the parody, isn't it interesting? He doesn't say anything to the moms. He addresses the dads. Because the child relationship is directly under responsibility of the father. That's why Satan goes after that relationship so hard. What I want to see is that we walk out of here with a desire, Lord, teach me what it really means in practice to be a spiritual man. Lord, we're about to go to prayer time. And my prayer would be, for me, would you please work for me to be truly holy, to be really spirit-controlled. One of the things on my list each day as I pray, I'm talking about my personal life. And I, I don't want my kids to grow up just, oh yeah, your dad was an evangelist. I want my kids to hear, your dad walked with God. I think God loved Jesus Christ. And dad loved you kids. That's what I want to see. And I, I pray that they might see the Lord Jesus Christ in the man. My wife is usually to see Christ like I said, me. Please work with us. You know the areas where each of us need what we heard. Some it's kids in the relationship to parents, some it's husbands to wives, some it's how we parent, some it's uh, in employer employer relationships. Every one of us needs something. I pray we'll take the truth. Be set for Jesus' name. Amen.